It was exciting. Uh, usually when I, I give a message, it was something that was like on my heart and it just came up, the opportunity came up and I was able to speak just what I was, you know, studying and thinking about. And this time Jeremy said, yeah, I'm going to be gone. You know, would you, would you speak? And I'd like you to do this or at least speak on this passage. And it was, it was Colossians, which complements Ephesians. So, you know, it was staying consistent with his, with his theme. And, and it was first supposed to be last week and this week. And then Dave became available, and, and that was a great thing to get him slipped in here. And so it turned into one week. So then instead of doing the whole book of Colossians, we narrowed it down to chapter 1, which I think had just a ton of stuff. And then interesting how God works is, as it was kind of unfolding, I'm thinking of studying it over the last number of, of weeks, almost months. Uh, there was a, a book that I'd read. Jeremy actually recommended to the congregation by Michael S. Heiser. Uh, supernatural, and and it really you know sparked a lot of things in my my heart and mind about my own spirituality and and what God's actually doing in this world. And it turns out that you know the title of today's sermon is the supernatural worldview of Paul. And so lo and behold, I get to speak on something that I was excited about, <laughs> in spite of Jeremy. Uh, <clears throat> But it was neat, as we met a couple times uh, leading up to this, uh, you know, he was very much open, okay, where is God taking you with this? You know, he, he wasn't like trying to micromanage the, the, the whole message, and so that, that was kind of neat. Um, I, uh, we were looking at what I should wear this morning, and I, I kind of like to, you know, dress up a little bit more than maybe Jeremy does, and... <clears throat> But I didn't want to go, you know, I usually go full suit. And I thought, no, nah, I, I, you know, I haven't been in a full suit. They're kind of trendy, you know. I mean, Dave was in one last week. He, he, he presented well. Uh, but so I, I put on this, and I put on the vest. And I, I kind of looked in the mirror, and I walked out to Lisa. I said, vest or no vest? She goes, well, you kind of look like an old man that needs a pipe. <laughs> no vest. <laughs> So at any rate, I digress. So, well, let's, I, I, ha, I know what I'm going to start with. I know what I'm going to end with. The middle of this thing could go anywhere. So I'll just say that out of the gate. Uh, I'm thankful that there's not communion and other things eating up a lot of the time. Kenny was brief. So that was good. But do you believe what the Bible says? Do you? All right put on my old man glasses. I know, C.S. Lewis smoked a pipe. C.S. Lewis looked good with a pipe. <clears throat> All right. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23. Micaiah, have you ever heard of Micaiah? He's, he's a prophet back there. Micaiah said, this is before King Ahab. And uh, king Ahab is not a very righteous king, and he was looking for counsel, and his, his, his counselors were telling him to go up to war at Ramoth Gilead, and he, he wanted to know if what they were saying was true, so he, they brought Micaiah, who was known as the prophet of, of God. I don't know who he was listening to, the other guys, you know, but he thought, well, let's get Micaiah's opinion. 
And therefore, says Micaiah, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, God said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. So, do you hear what the Bible is asking you to believe? That God is sitting on his throne, addressing his court, and asking them for ideas on how to kill King Ahab. And one says this, and another says that. And then one comes forward and says, I'll be a deceiving spirit. And trick him into it. And God says, go and do so. You'll be successful. And just to show how successful that was, uh, the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Shania, <clears throat> uh, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah said, If you, do, if you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Listen, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go out into the battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Do not fight with the small or great, but with the king of Israel alone, who is disguised, but another one looks like him. So when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. When the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, who was disguised, in the joint of the armor, so that he said to the driver of the chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. And he died. You know, so the Bible is asking you to believe that God sits in his court and counsels with other divine beings in his court. And they come up with ideas, and they do it. Have any of you really read that story? Maybe a couple. Interesting story. Let's go somewhere else. Jude. 
The book of Jude, verse 6. It's only one chapter. And he's speaking about, I'll start in verse 5. He's talking about different things God's doing as judgment. Now I desire to remind you, though, you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe in the, in the wilderness, uh, ultimately over a 40-year period of time. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's angels, maybe in an underground prison. These were the angels. Jude is influenced here by a book uh, called uh, the first book of Enoch. Enoch is an Old Testament character. You might remember God snatched him up alive. He was a righteous man. Well, there was a whole book written about him, the first book of Enoch. It's not in the canon of Scripture, but it was highly regarded in Jewish writings. And Jude is influenced here and actually quotes from it. He's speaking about these spirits that are in prison. They were the spirits that cohabitated with the daughters of men prior to the flood. And they were imprisoned after the flood. The spirits lived <laughs> through the flood, but they were in prison. That's a pretty supernatural thing to, to believe. Let's go to 1 Peter. He kind of ex- expands on this. Uh, verse 18, chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. There are some pastors that won't even preach on that passage because it's it's quite odd. In, In his book, Supernatural, Micah Heiser actually talks about a pastor that was opened up, and he says, yeah, we're on chapter 3, but we're going to skip this part because it's just too weird. And that's what the guy actually said from the pulpit. Because it's very supernatural. It's talking about these spirits in prison. And Peter was influenced by the first book of Enoch as well, where Enoch, actually in that book, descends to these spirits. Somehow, in in northern uh, Israel, in a place called Bashan, uh, up by Caesarea Philippi, uh, there is a mountain, Hermon, Mount Hermon. And it was believed that that was the place where the spirits were imprisoned in that mountain. And there, there were gateways to that place, it was believed. And in the book of Enoch, it talks about Enoch going to that place. And the spirits petitioned him to request God to let them out, which Enoch did in the story. And then God said, no, they, they don't get out. In which Enoch had to go back and tell them that they, they weren't getting out. And Peter's drawing off that story 
and likening it to Christ who did that exact same thing. Satan is the Lord of the dead. Did you know that? All humans die, and Satan has the rights to them until, until Christ, you know, paid the price. And so Christ went to the place of the dead when he died. And I'm sure those spirits in prison there, they probably remembered Enoch, if that actually occurred. And they thought, oh, Christ showed up here. We won. Right? But Christ proclaimed to them that they did not win. That he has now broken the veil. And, and he is now uh, ruler and above all and in all. And so these are some difficult things to comprehend. They've been in your Bible all along. You just maybe have read over them and haven't really dived into it. But that's a very supernatural thought that Christ went and communicated to those spirits and proclaimed his authority to them. Uh, and so at any rate, Paul had this supernatural feeling. If we go to Colossians, let's get to our text so that we, lest we forget what text we're in. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, among you know, over and above all the other apostles, would, would know that it was by God's will that he was an apostle. He was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. And, and a formidable guy, probably a very strong personality, and he was imprisoning him, he was ruthlessly. And he is struck by the glory of Christ, I think, blinded. Christ blinded him before he died because anyone who sees God in his glory will, be, will die. But he's blinded. Now, you imagine a guy like Paul, you know, steadfast in his purpose to, to quelch Christianity, and then he has Christ himself in a supernatural event, blinding him on the road and saying, this is Christ. Why are you persecuting? I mean, that, that would influence you, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, by the will of God. Like, not my will. God struck him blind. And then, as Jeremy went in a couple weeks ago into great detail about the three-plus years that he was probably in the wilderness, you know, being taught by Christ himself, and so he was, he was an apostle of apostles, taught by Christ himself, one-on-one. -on -one. And he's writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. These are Christians that he's writing to, for sure. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Praying because he believed that God was active in people's lives and that our prayers matter. We thank, uh, praying always for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, it, has const it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it, 
and understood the grace of God and truth. I have the inductive study Bible, and it encourages you to underline or, or color the author and anything referencing the author, author and color the recipients and anything referencing the recipients and to outline different keywords. And a key word here is the hope laid up for you in heaven. And did you know that heaven is a temporary place? No, don't you think of heaven as eternal? Well, heaven is eternal. But it's a temporary abode where we will be. Where is eternity played out? In the new heaven and new earth. The new Eden. Like God set up heaven on earth in Eden. He was adding human beings to his divine court. Uh, Michael Heisner kind of goes into the, uh, let us make man in our own image. But then it refers to God in the singular later. And then there's another passage that says, let us. And he's saying that that us, that's often attributed to the Trinity. But he says the Trinity wouldn't have the need to tell themselves anything. He says, us, God, God was never, well, at one time when, when he created his court, he wasn't alone at creation. And his other beings are created in his image. And it's talking about, and we already see in 1 Kings that he does discuss things with his court. And he created heaven on earth, and he dwelled there. There was a place, maybe quite likely, I, I think maybe Jerusalem was the center of Eden. Maybe God, that's always kind of been holy ground. I mean, Melchizedek, he was in Salem, which was Jerusalem. Maybe, maybe that was kind of always holy ground because God, maybe that's where Eden was, where God dwelled. And the other spiritual beings were there as well. And man was going to be the new addition to the family. And somehow Satan, you know, fell and led that plan astray. And so since the fall, God has been in the process of restoring Eden. And if you read all the way through to Revelation, that's where it ends up. The new heavens and the new earth. God, his heavenly host, and a human race perfected through the blood of Christ for an eternal, perfect kingdom that will reign forever. And the intent that was at the beginning. And so when you see that supernatural plan of God, you can start to interpret Scripture as, as we go. And as we see here, uh, the hope laid up for us in heaven. This is where the Bema Seed is going to be in heaven during the tribulation. That is the, the time that we will be in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. And that is what we are looking forward to. That is what our works go towards here on earth. We, don't, we aren't saved by our works. God is interested in believing loyalty. Even with Israel, he said, you know, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. 
One of the aspects of the supernatural worldview that, that Israel had, and also that Paul subsequently had, is that the gods were real. Did you ever think of the gods as real? The Baal, the Ashtaroth, these gods? Did you ever think that they were spiritual beings, actually, or just empty idols? The idols may have been what man built. But the reason God is so jealous is that somebody is actually trusting an inferior spiritual being for their, their hope. And, and God is a jealous God. And if you uh, look at, uh, let's see here, the Tower of Babel, uh, when, when Christ, you know, we had Eden, we had the fall, then it just depreciates all the way to the flood. And God starts over with Noah, a remnant, and he tells Noah the same thing he told Adam and Eve, go and fill the earth, which they did. Many people were, were born, but they didn't fill the earth. They wanted to stay in one spot. And then they thought, oh, we'll build a tower and bring the gods to ourselves." And God dispersed them with language. Do you remember that? And in Deuteronomy... Let me, let me turn there, see if I can find that. Deuteronomy 32. This is referencing, remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations as your father. Ask your father, and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples. This is referencing Babel. According to the number of the sons of Israel, it says in my text. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the word there for, for, that is interpreted as Israel is actually Elohim in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls text, the earliest text that we have of the scriptures. Uh, so that would be sons of God, which are Elohim. We often think of, of our God, but Elohim can re reference any spiritual being. And so he div divided the nations, it, not just by language, but he put spiritual beings over them. So like America, we often think, you know, in God we trust. Judeo-Christian ethics have have influenced our country. But there's, there's a spiritual being that has an interest in this place. That's real. There's a spiritual warfare. I, I haven't personally read Frank Peretti, but Frank Peretti, you know, wrote novels along this theme, that there is a spiritual warfare at work over and above our physical world. And it began at Babel. And an interesting, an interesting spin, when you, when you look at the second chapter of Acts, the, of Pentecost, that the, the Holy Spirit came on them with a wind, 
that was consistent with Old Testament of God being active, wind, and tongues of fire. And then they were able to speak, but the, the audience heard each in their own language. So one man speaking, perhaps multiple languages is being heard. If God is trying to restore what, you know, the promise of Abraham in, in, in chapter 12 of Genesis, that through you all the nations will be blessed. You see, God divided the nations at Babel. What was the very next event? Babel is like Genesis 10, 11. Genesis 12. What's he do? Come on, what's in Genesis 12? He calls Abraham. He calls his own people, set out. He gave the gods all the other nations, and God chooses his nation, another remnant. Noah didn't quite work. Now we're going to pick another remnant. And if you follow through all the way through the Exodus, you remember he was just about going to choose Moses as another remnant. He got so upset with them, seeking another god, right? The idol wasn't just the idol. They were making that idol to a god. And God's a jealous god. And he was going to, I'm just going to wipe them out. I'll start over with you, Moses. I've started over before. I'll start over with you. And Moses treats him and, and talks God out of wiping out all of Israel. But in the second chapter of Acts, it's undoing. It's the, the great reversal. Christ came and is reversing the curse. The curse is that we would all die, that we were separated from God. And Christ is reversing that. And the Pentecost in order to reach all of the nations, for all of the nations to be blessed, the, the, the separating of the languages was a barrier to that gospel message going throughout the whole world. And Pentecost was a supernatural undoing of that language barrier. By each man hearing in his own language the gospel, 3,000 being saved, and then those going all out into all the nations with that understood message of grace. That's a supernatural event. The gospel is a supernatural event. So let's go back to Colossians. So doing in you also, so the, the, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. A supernatural worldview 
you believe that God is active in this world. You know, the world wants you to think that it's just physical. Satan's counterfeit is evolution. Random chance. Just benign utilitarianism. It's just, it's just, it's not divine. It's not supernatural. Paul had a supernatural worldview. If we have a supernatural worldview, it will impact what we do. There, there is no faith outside of supernatural. You know, what, what Christ, what, what Satan would love is if we got really good at righteousness. You ever think about that? What, what does getting really good at righteousness do? It leads to pride. Yeah. I you know, right now I'm I'm bouncing around close to my high school weight. And I, I've done that with hard work and I'm kinda of proud about it. We can do things on our on our own, right? It's the way of the world. If you want to win a race, what do you do? You work out, you exercise, you, you, you get good. We can do a lot with the try hard and do better. We can't become righteous before a holy God by trying hard and doing better. Christ, God, is interested in believing loyalty, that we believe that Christ came, that we could not save ourselves, that Christ's works saved us. That is what saves us, is believing of what, in what Christ did. And then as we're intimate with Christ, what Chuck said this morning, as our fellowship with Christ increases, our intimacy with him increases, then the righteousness follows. If you really were intimate with Christ in a way that you felt his presence, right? We're, we're now... It's something that Michael Heiser deals with in his book is sacred space. You know, holy, you know, Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. You know, God was there. Nothing holy about that bush, but God was there. Jerusalem, God was there in the temple. The holy of holies. You can't go in there. It, God is there. It's holy. Where is God today? In us. We are sacred space. That's a supernatural thing. If you really believe that supernatural reality and you're intimate with Christ as if he's right there with you, your righteousness will follow. Guarantee you, when you're sinning, you're not dwelling on that sacred space. You're not intimate with Christ at that moment. In 1 John, it, it says basically if you're intimate with Christ, you cannot sin. Well, obviously we do. It's, it's our intimacy with him that matters, our fellowship with him that is determining that moral state. If we have intimacy with Christ, our righteousness will follow. That's the focus. Oh, I got to try hard and do better. 
No, Jeremy has two places in his office where he has the word no. He uses it most often when people start saying, well, what I really need to do is, and he just says, no. No, that's the wrong starting point. What I really, I just need to get better at, no. You focus on that, you'll either get proud or you'll have failure. Focus on the intimacy. Focus on your prayer life. Something I did, something that's helped me uh, get to my current physical state is my friend, uh, Troy Soljum, from North Dakota. He just became a missionary with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I'm going to have Mitch connect a couple of videos to this message because Ultimately, the end application of this message is um, a, a faith message, just because of where we are as a church right now. Purpose, you know, uh, and identity and purpose, those would be the two things in this message. But with your purpose comes a lot of faith. And Troy, Troy's just been through a lot. He lost a nine-year-old son. A number of years ago, in a in a ATV rollover at his work, like he was a fence company. He has son he homeschooled. Son was at work, going back to the truck to get some tools. Slow speed rollover, died. And he was he was, you know, tagged also with negligent cause of physical harm to a child which is like a child abuse flag. So when somebody asked him if he wanted to teach at uh, a private school, he couldn't teach at the private school because he's a negligent child abuser. And so when he asked, when, when Fellowship of Christian Athletes was asking him, you know, is there anything you know, that's going to flag out on a background report? He says, well, yeah, yeah, there is. He says, well, we'll just, we'll just see where it goes. And, uh, and so, I mean, his ministry was mostly with coaches, but, you know, it, it was just, it was going to be one of those, there's probably a clause in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes that you can't be a, you know, child abuser. <laughs> it's probably a clause that covers that. And so they did the, the background check, and there was nothing there. It's like gone. He'd been there for years. And it's gone. It's kind of a neat story. Yeah. And he shares another faith story of a, a friend of his that was beginning a ministry and, you know, it was going to take well over a million dollars to build a facility for this ministry. And they had 3000 in liquid capital that he pledged to God and he began the process. And the ministry was built, and he never touched that $3,000. But it took faith to begin it, right? So he asked me when he started getting in, when he was accepted in Fellowship of Christian Athletes, kind of by a miracle, uh, he asked if I would uh, commit to prayer and fasting, you know, a day a month or two days a month. And so I, I opted for every other Thursday which coincided with 
with the elder meetings and I thought, oh, that would just be kind of a practical thing. And uh, it's probably a major catalyst to my physical success. <laughs> um, but for spiritual disciplines too, you know, your, your hunger is tied to your mind. So you think about it a lot and then you, you tie that back to prayer. And so, and so it increases your prayer life. So it's a good, uh, a good thing. You know, God encourages fasting and prayer. You, you can bet there's probably some physical benefit to fasting if, if it's in the Bible to do. There's probably a legitimate uh, benefit there. But um, it's been a good side effect for, for fellowship with, with God, you know. And I think ongoing, I'm by no means mercy. Lisa could tell you. <laughs> I got I got some ways to go, but uh, that is a pattern I I hope to continue because it's not just something that I'm saying. Oh, this is a spiritual discipline I'm going to do. It's just it affords an opportunity for for intimacy with Christ. You know. So and there's some other positive side effects to it, and so. Um, but in that prayer, I, I was looking at how, how Paul is always praying for these people that he's writing to. And we have elder ministry care groups that we've divided up among. Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. Uh, those of you on mine, I'm going to be sending a little Christmas thing to, you know, kind of let you know who you are. <laughs> and you can know that I'm, I'm attempting to pray for you on a regular basis. And because Paul, obviously, there was good reason to do so. And I think it's a, a good thing for the history of our church, just to have a solid communication between the, the leadership and the, and the congregation. Uh, this can be a, something that, that we should be more aware of, that I, I want you who are on my elder care list to know that you're on my list, so that you know, if something comes up, I, I've connected. When you get your card, you go, oh, I remember talking to Kevin. Like, I happened to get a hold of you, or I happened to sit by you. It's, you know, it's really hard to get a hold of somebody at church. Like, oh, I'm going to talk to so-and-so today. No, you're not. It's like, yeah, you're out the door somewhere. You know, somebody else flags you. You, you turn around, talk to somebody, and then you go, oh, they were there. You know, and they're gone. You know, so it's very difficult to connect at, at church sometimes. And so, uh, but now you'll, you'll know if I tell you who you are. And maybe you can approach me <laughs> because you'll understand how, how probably bad I am at getting a hold of you. Um, but it can be a two-way street, you know, and you can pray for me and I can pray for you. And because prayer, according to Paul here, was very good. And let's look at this, just with what I've been saying now. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that would, would knowledge of his will, of God's will, and, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, would that lead to intimacy? Does that speak towards intimacy with God? Yeah. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He'll please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What comes first? Doing the stuff 
No, the prayer and increasing in the knowledge of his will, getting into God's word, and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, increasing our relationship with Christ and with God. Then comes the work, so that you will. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father in this Thanksgiving time. Lisa told me to mention Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is the second reference to the Bema Seat. We're going to share in an inheritance, but not just, you know, we think of this inheritance. Do you know part of the great reversal, the nations were given to these gods that at some time rebelled against God, just like Satan did. We're not told where or when, but Psalm 82, Psalm 82, let's go there. This was their inheritance. They inherited the nations. God gave it to them. They were part of his court. God takes his stand in his own congregation, in his court. He judges in the midst of the rulers. This word is Elohim, gods. How long will you judge unjustly? They're not doing their job the way he commissioned them to do it. He didn't give them the nations so that they could lure the people to worship them, which ultimately, like apparently it went to their head. How long will you judge unjustly and, and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And then the last verse 8 is then David saying, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. The nations were given to those gods, but they are not dealing righteously with them. And God is going to redeem those nations back. David's even saying that. It's you who possess the nations. You gave them to these gods, but they are your nations. And ultimately, Pentecost was the beginning of that reversal where God's going to redeem those nations through. And Paul believe this, and we'll see that as we go on. <clears throat> so we have this inheritance. That inheritance is going to include, there are going to be new rulers of the nations in the eternal kingdom. Do you know who gets to be those rulers? Yeah, they're going to be saints of the Christian realm. God is going to dethrone those other Elohim, and we're going to judge. I mean, Paul says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? We're going to be 
that's going to be part of our inheritance. If, you know, I think some will be in that position. Other Christians won't be in that position. I think it'll be determined at the Bema seat. I think that's where our works are really going to separate who's who in God's kingdom and what they do. Uh, not all will be at that level, but some will. So it's something to, to look forward to, something to look to. We're, we're all going to share in that inheritance in some way. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. When Paul references the domain of darkness, I mean, he's, he's probably figuratively thinking of Bashan, the realm of the dead. In his, in his Jewish mind, in his supernatural mindset and worldview, the domain of darkness is, is that Bashan, that area, the, the gates of hell, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul is not just referencing earthly kingdoms and authorities there. He's refer- he has a supernatural worldview. Those are all rulers and all authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He descended to the realm of the dead. And he addressed those spirits in prison. And he is now the firstborn from the dead. He overcame the grave. He did not stay there. They did not have dominion over him. He had dominion over death. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It was God's eternal plan. All through the ages, as God worked through different people and dispensation, Christ was the plan to be over all things. And although you were formerly formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you. Okay, how did you do something to save you? Who reconciled us? Christ. Christ reconciled us. We didn't do anything for that. In his fleshly body, through death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, here's where it gets tricky. He's going to present you before him. That is God. So there's a few pronouns here. He, Christ, has now reconciled you in his, Christ's, fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, God the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if, if, conditional. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard 
which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. What's with the conditional statement? Is our presence in heaven determined by our actions? What's this conditional statement referencing? Where we serve. The Bema seat's been mentioned twice before this. It's now mentioned a third time in order to present you before God the Father. That's part of the Bema experience, is a presentation. That presentation is what is conditional. What is included in that presentation? He wants to present us holy and blameless above reproach. Maybe we get presented as pretty good. <laughs> Trusted me most of the time. I don't know. It's a subjective guess there. But there's something conditional about the Bema seat. If there's reward or lack of reward, I mean, there's loss. There's potential loss there. It's going to be significant. It's something to think about. It's our hope. We want to make it, we don't want it to be a dread. We want it to be a hope. And that's what the emphasis is here. God's going to present us. We need to be about our business. And so this is the gospel message that, that Paul has been made a minister. Now, verse 24 uh, to 29 are basically moving into Paul's mission statement. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And this could be a confusing verse, too. It's, Paul's not saying that any of Christ's actions were lacking. He's just acknowledging that I'm suffering, you know, in prison for you. Just consider that my part in the sufferings of Christ. That's, that's how we're to interpret that. And so I think, too, when we suffer, if we were to suffer for our faith, just consider it part of, you know, it's just part of Christ's suffering. We're, we're just doing our part. It's not that anything Christ did. Christ, what Christ did was absolutely effective. And then here is, is Paul's mission statement, his purpose. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul was driven by purpose. Identity and purpose. His identity was in Christ. 
And his purpose was to spread that gospel message to all the world. And he believed it was to be done in his lifetime. He, in, in Romans 15, we don't have to go there, but in Romans 15, Paul is addressing the Romans saying, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem right now. This was a little before uh, the book of Colossians. He's on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that he's probably going to get arrested there. And he's, he's telling the Romans, I'm going to come visit you. <laughs> he probably kind of knows I'm probably going to be you know, handcuffed on my way there. But he, he's believing that he's going to spend some time with them in, in Rome, and then he's progressing on to Spain after he, he meets with those in Rome. And why would he go to Spain? Why was it so important for him to go to Spain? If you look at the nations listed in Genesis chapter 10 at, at Babel, and the nations listed in Acts chapter 2, the regions listed in Acts chapter 2, Spain would be the farthest reaching western point of what is talked about there. Paul's redeeming the nations. He's doing his part to redeem the nations. He's the great reversal. They were dispersed at Babel. Pentecost is reversing that. And I, Paul, am a minister to the Gentiles, to those nations. And it's going to happen in my lifetime. He believed that. He had the faith. And there's, Jeremy says that he did, in fact, get to Spain. And, and, and fulfill as much as he could towards that end. But, you know, he didn't realize that there was, you know, Iceland and, you know, every, everywhere else in the world that, that basically Rome stretched a lot farther uh, allegorically than, than what it did at that time. You know, we might be considered part of, under Rome, the European empire beyond the sea. But all the nations will be redeemed ultimately. And, you know, what was neat about Christ, you know, this mystery. What is the mystery? Did you know that, that Christ, that the message of a Messiah is not directly in the Old Testament? I mean, when Christ said he was going to die, did his apostles say, Oh, yeah, of course, we remember reading that in the scriptures. No, they didn't. They were, like, really confused. You know, when Satan tempted Jesus, you remember what the third temptation was? I'll give you all the nations of the world. You think Satan didn't know that God wanted to redeem those nations? What if I tailor a temptation that kind of gets what God wants? What if I what if I frame it that way? And Christ, you know, basically told him to get lost, but he didn't allude that he was to die. Satan didn't know that Christ had to die to bring in the great reversal. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. That if they had known the rulers and authorities, which you could say, oh, the chief priests and magistrates, 
those are the, the little guys. If the real rulers and authorities knew that the death of Christ and his resurrection would undo the curse, they never would have crucified our Lord. That's what Paul says. It had to be kept a secret. It was a mystery throughout all the old. The only reason we know, remember the road to Emmaus? What did Christ have to do after saying everything? He opened their eyes. It's not obvious. The only reason we can see it is that we have hindsight. It's easy to look back. Hindsight's always 20-20. But in the midst, it was, um, it was supernatural deception. God was cloaking the whole plan because the supernatural powers could not know. And so what's interesting, I like, I'm going to hurry here. What's interesting is when Christ is at Caesarea Philippi. Do you know that that's uh, northern Israel? It's the northern part of what was known as Bashan. Do you remember what I mentioned Bashan was? The, the, the place of the dead. What did he say there? What was his question to the disciples? To Peter, specifically. Right there. What was his question? Who do you say? And Christ said, well, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ said, and you are Peter, and upon this rock, what was behind him? Mount Hermon, the gates of hell will not prevail against him. He was standing at the foot of Mount Hermon, the very place Old Israel would believe there were gateways to the dead. I'm going to build my church right here. Who's he calling out? Yeah. You know, six days later, what do they do? Three of the the apostles, disciples at that time, and Christ go up on a mountain. What mountain? What happens there? This is my beloved son. Here I am. Come and get me. Did you ever think that that Jesus tempted Satan? And Satan played in. Right after that, then Christ starts talking about going to Jerusalem and dying. You know, that's significant. This world has a supernatural aspect to it. It's not just this physical thing. 
God is at work, and there are forces at work. I mean, in our world, in Portage. You know, I, I saw, I'll, I'll tie up with a little story of, of Grace Bible, you know. I have a position that goes all the way back to the beginning, almost. I'm connected to the beginning. Lisa's family was one of the first families in Grace Bible. So when I was dating her, subsequently engaged, I came here and we, we did marital counseling with Steve Corbett. And he, uh, I was taking youth ministries major and a biblical studies major at Northwestern College. So he's like, hey, we need a youth pastor here. And he had this vision of, of reaching the youth of Portage. And he was sharing this with me. I mean, way back then. That was a long time ago. 37 years. And, and he had a vision to reach the youth, you reach Portage. And at that time, it was this, this land out by Highway 33, east of, or west of, yeah, east of Portage. We're going to build, you know, this thing, maybe, you know, have a facility there that kids can come to. Then ultimately, we built, we built this. And Steve still had this vision. We're going to build this thing for the youth. We're going to do something with the youth. And time goes on, you know. Um, and then, you know, we just, we built this and, and it was paid off incredibly fast. And then we just, we, we just, nothing happened. We just kept doing church. And then Steve, you know, aged, aged out, you could say. That's what they say in my industry. And I, I joke because I'm 57 and still climbing. <laughs> But Steve, you know, was, was looking to retire, so we started looking for a replacement pastor. And somehow, you know, things happen the way they do, and, and everyone knows we had a kind of a desert experience here for a while. Through that whole circumstance, uh, the theology was a little contrary to what we were looking for, and, and it, it created a real kind of dark time. Uh, and then there were two years where we didn't have a pastor. Paul Scharf was our pastor for two years. And, and then Jeremy came. And Jeremy said he was here not, not three weeks. You know, new pastors, what they do, they go around the whole town. And he said, reach the youth, reach the portage. Sound familiar? You know, and I don't know why, you know, in the early years we didn't, we didn't keep building. You know, I, I have a feeling it's a, it's a faith issue. You know, if you look at, at the nation of Israel, when they, they came up on the, the land and they sent in the ten spies, or the 12? Is it 12? Yeah, it was 12. And 10 came back. There's giants there. And Caleb and Joshua said, no, they've already been given to us. Let's go. Let's do it. And then, of course, we know there was the desert experience, right? And then they get brought back. 
This is my end. They get brought back after 40 years. Everyone, as God promised, everyone alive at the time of the first entry attempt has died. Is everybody 20 years and younger that was left? Except Caleb and Joshua. They got to stay. Not even Moses got to go. You know? Um, so Caleb's still there. And here it is. Then the sons of Judah. Now, ironically, they arrive at a place where there's giants again. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live. Just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day of Moses sent me. Wow. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day that Anakim were there and great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out. He's 85 years old. He says, give me the giants. Here we are, not 45 years later, but we're a number of years later. We're faced with the exact same thing. Reach the youth, reach for it. It's going to take faith. The assurance of things hopeful, the conviction of things not seen. It's going to be bigger than us. It's going to be bigger than our money. It's going to look scary. Who do you want to be? The 10? Or do you want to be Caleb? I want to be I want to be Caleb. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you supernaturally interact with this world. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a purpose. Each of us can have a purpose as, as resolute as Paul's. For this purpose, also, we labor. We could say it. We could be resolved to go to Spain. Whatever that might look like for us. Lord, I pray that faith can be a part of this congregation. For so long, we've been comfortably astute financially. We're in a very good position. We have mastered our financial righteousness. Lord, we pray for the faith to stretch beyond what we might be able to see. To stretch beyond what we might think is possible. That we might reach Portage, a land part of the lost nations of which you wish to redeem. And Lord, we pray that each of us can develop an intimacy with you that will be effective in making us ministers for you. Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.